this is my favorite book. Um, I, I watched the movie as well. If, if you've seen the movie, you might not have appreciated it if you didn't read the book. And actually, the whole series of books, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, um, and we won't go into all the series of books, but it's, I mean, it's just, it's hilarious. I love it. The, just the, 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 the humor in it, it's kind of, it's British humor, so not everybody gets it, but it's also, like, there's, there's real, like, physics in it as well, like, actual stuff, actual science in there, uh, real theories and things, and, and theorems and whatever. So I love it. It just, it just cracks me up. And in the book, they build a computer. It's a supercomputer. It's the size of a city, and it's called Deep Thought. And the idea behind building Deep Thought was to answer the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything. It took seven and a half million years for Deep Thought to compute the answer to this question. And there was a huge party. Everyone came together because it was the day that Deep Thought was going to deliver the answer. And everyone can't wait to get the answer to the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything. And Deep Thought gives the answer. And the answer is 42. <laughs> kind of a letdown. Everyone's confused. What the heck is this supercomputer talking about? 42. That can't possibly be the answer. So deep thought, actually, to the, the, the people that created this supercomputer, which is a, a group of, let's see if I can get this right. I didn't write it down. I should have. Um, intergalactic, pan-dimensional, superintelligent beings that created this computer. And the computer admonishes its creators and says, look, I've researched this quite thoroughly, and I can tell you definitely that the answer is 42. I think the problem is that you guys really didn't know the question. So the funny thing about this is that the answer to this ultimate question cannot be solved by an equation. But when you ask a computer to solve this problem, it's going to solve it. It's going to approach the problem as if it were an equation, and the answer to the equation is going to be something that doesn't make sense, like 42. So let's, let's kind of keep this story, this whole thing, in, in the back of our minds. We'll, we'll come back to it, but it's not, we're not going to jump into it right away. But we are going to start with an equation. That turned out really easy to read, didn't it? I probably should have thought about these slides a little better. Anyway... The equation that we're going to use is that provision does not equal deprivation. Okay, for math geeks, this is not an equation, is it? Why is this not an equation? It's not actually an equation because there's an inequality. Equations, one side has to equal the other side. That's an equation. An inequality has that... That's showing up great, too. That little does not equal sign in it. So this is actually an inequality. We're, we're saying we're starting with provision not equaling deprivation. So let's define. Again, really easy to read. So I'll, I'll read it for us. So from dictionary.com, I found the definitions that work best for this sermon. Um, there are many other definitions, but these are the ones that I like the best for my purposes. 
Provision is the providing or supplying of something, especially of food or other necessities. Deprivation is the absence, loss, or withholding of something needed. These are, by definition, opposites. So if we're going to hold to these definitions, and and we're going to, trust me, (laughs) they are indeed not equal. They are opposite of each other. Provision is the presence of stuff needed. Deprivation is the lack of stuff needed. Okay, so let's hang on to this inequality too. In fact, we're going to go ahead and make it even more legible by putting it really small up in the corner. But it's going to stay with us so that we can remember it. And now we'll get into our scripture for today. And our scripture, we're going to be in 1 Kings uh, chapter 17. If anyone wants to read, actually... Let's start in 16, but we're not going to read 16. I'm going to give us a quick summary of what's going on. So, we've been going through the book of Kings, and the book of Kings is is pretty much what it says it is. It is a telling, it is a, a, a historical account of the kings of Israel. But we're going to get a little bit of break from that historical account of the kings of Israel. But before we do that, we're going to talk about uh, where we are in this, this lineage of kings of Israel. We are at the king known as Ahab. Uh, before Ahab, there were a bunch of really, really bad kings of Israel. Um, there was, uh, let's see, in, in, in chapter 16, it talks about, briefly, it talks about Basha, Elah, Zimri, Omri, and then Ahab, Ahab being the son of Omri. And in 1 Kings 16, verse 30, we read that Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. Ahab was a bad king. And there are two things mentioned in in chapter 16 that are are especially evil in the eyes of the Lord, that make Ahab, sorry, a bad king. First of all, he married a woman named Jezebel. And that's bad enough, right? That's just a bad idea. But the bad thing about marrying Jezebel was what she did. And we'll get into that in a minute. He even built a temple for for Baal worship in Samaria. So he married this Jezebel and he worshipped Baal. These are the two really bad things that he did. So who's Jezebel? Jezebel is the daughter of the king of the Sidonians. And this is going to, as we get into chapter 17, become very important. Sidon was a Canaanite city where Baal worship was prevalent. Another thing to note here is is actually who Baal was and what it was thought that he did as as this deity, as as a god. Basically, Baal was a... Excuse me. Baal was the rain god. And in an agrarian society, especially an agrarian society that's in an arid area, a dry area, rain is the difference between life and death. It's the difference between provision and deprivation. No rain, no crops. So Baal, as the rain god, also served as their fertility god. And Baal worship involved, mostly, it involved temple prostitution. Uh, The act of intercourse was thought to arouse Baal as he watched and in this aroused state he would send rain 
This is Baal worship. So now that we have this backstory, let's get into our actual, our actual narrative that we're going to focus on. So, so as I said, we focused on kings up till now, but the narrative in chapter 17 of 1 Kings switches from a narrative about the kings to a narrative about Elijah, the prophet Elijah. So let's go to verse 1. Dylan, you're going you're gonna to throw down? All right. Yeah, just, just one verse. Verse 1 of chapter 17 is where we'll start. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Okay, so, so Elijah comes on the scene and he announces this drought that comes from the Lord, that comes from God. This is a direct affront to Baal, obviously, who's being worshipped by Ahab, Jezebel, and they've, they've even built a temple to him. God is positioning himself immediately, right off the bat, as directly opposite to Baal. He's saying, you think Baal is your provider? Okay, I'm going to show you deprivation. I'm going to show you the opposite. So let's bring our inequality back here to show we're actually, we're, we're separating God from Baal. God is using this inequality to show Baal, he's really nothing. Me, I'm everything. Let's go and read verses 2 through 6 now. Two through six. Yeah. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have ordered the ravens to feed you there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan, and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Okay, so, biblically, generally speaking, when you move east, you're moving away from God. That's generally what we see. In this case, it's a little bit different. Elijah is moving east. He's exiting, going, going to an area that's east of the Jordan. He is actually exiting Israel. And it would seem like he's asking to, to separate Elijah from, from God, because that's generally what a movement east is. But in this case, it's not that. It's cutting off. In fact, kareth means cutting or separating. It even sounds like that, doesn't it? Kareth sounds like cut, like a chop or something. I think you made it louder. <laughs> no, no worries. So, so this cutting off is not, it's not separating Elijah from God. It's separating him from Israel. He's moving outside of, of Israel, outside of Ahab's influence. Ahab is king of Israel east of the Jordan is outside of Israel. And then that is where God provides for Elijah. Not within, it's then, it's further separating God's provision from Ahab and Baal worship. 
It's interesting to note here, and we, we won't go deep into this. There's a lot here, but it's interesting to note the parallel between this sign of Elijah being fed bread and meat while he is escaping and, and living in the wilderness, the parallel between that and the Israelites escaping Pharaoh and Egypt and being fed manna and quail. It's the, the parallels are, are just they're fascinating, and like I said, we could go really deep into that, but we're not going to. The use of ravens is interesting. Ravens are, when, when, when ravens are given kind of a personification, when they are given human attributes, they are thought to be very greedy animals. And the reason for that is ravens eat anything. They're omnivorous. They, they eat, they've been known to eat human garbage, like stuff we throw out, ravens eat. Uh, also, it's, it's a little bit of a myth, and I haven't been able to find any scientific evidence behind this, but it's been held uh, kind of traditionally that ravens also neglect their young. Like they're so greedy, they want food so bad that they eat it themselves and don't feed their young, which is different than any other birds. Birds are generally very, very attentive to their young. Again, don't know that that's true, but it's interesting in this context because God uses these greedy creatures to provide. Job 38, verse 40, is that one? Yeah, 41. <laughs> says, who provides food for the raven when its young cries out to God and wander about, lack, about for lack of food? So even in the Bible, it, it kind of brings up this, this idea that ravens don't feed their young. But they are used by God to provide for Elijah. The provision that is needed is not found in the king. It's found through God. So let's move on to 7 uh, through 16, verses 7 through 16. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. I have commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath, and when he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so that I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, And bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, Don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said, but first make a small cake of bread for me. And from what you have... A small cake of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. The jar of flour will not be used up. And the jug of oil will not run dry until the day of the Lord gives rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and for her family. For the jar of flour was not used up, and the jug of oil did not run dry, in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Okay, there are two, like in, in chapter 17, there are two, like, really kind of 
you know, duh moments in this passage. First, when we read in verse 1 that Elijah was a Tishbite from Tishbe. Yeah, no, no kidding. It's kind of, you know, repetitively repetitive. <clears throat> but then the second comes here in verse 7. It says that the, ver- the, 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 uh, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. It's like, well, yeah, of course the brook dried up because there's no rain in the land. But this is reinforcing. It's reinforcing that, that God's provision is true and also so is his deprivation. Baal could not stop the drought. I am sure that we had, we, we didn't have, they had in Israel a lot of Baal worship going on. They were worshiping like bunnies, if you get my meaning. <laughs> they were in the temple and they were trying to get Baal to make it rain, right? It wasn't working. The brook dried up. God's provision for Elijah even dried up. Look where God sends Elijah then. And Steve's not here, but, but in his honor, we're going to use a map. A small map that you can hardly see. But, okay, so here we have Samaria. Elijah was somewhere over here east of Samaria in a place called the Kareth Ravine. God sends him for provision to Zarephath, which is up here. Again, outside of Israel. Here's the town of Sidon up here. This region of Sidon would have been where the king of Sidon ruled. Jezebel was the daughter of the king of Sidon, this center of Baal worship. God sends Elijah not back to Israel to be provided for, to Sidon, right to Baal's doorstep. Throw it right in the face of Baal. You don't provide. God provides. This is where God puts Elijah. And it doesn't, this, this isn't the end of it. We're going we're gonna to polish this off, at least the reading portion of it, real quick. These last two big chunks. And then we'll talk a little bit more about Baal and just how God just, just throws this in, in their face. It's pretty awesome. Let's go uh, 17 through 24. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought tragedy also upon this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. This, this part of the narrative is, is really cool. And I found, again, something that you can see really well. 
it was a, it's this painting, and it is, it's really neat. It, it depicts Elijah coming down from the upper room with, with the boy in his arms, and the widow is just so thankful. And there are little, little portions of it as well. You've got this little shadow of a, of a dove here, kind of the, the presence of the Holy Spirit. It's just, this, this painting was awesome. All, the, all of the other pictures I found were, they were like, you know, your cheesy Sunday school flanograph stuff. And I, but this one just was really pretty. I wish, I, I should have researched it more and find, found out who painted it. I don't know who it was, but just it. I, I think it's beautiful. I'm going to hang it in, the, in our house, so you have that to look forward to, babe. Um, but another part of Baal worship uh, and, and the myth behind Baal was uh, was how his worshippers explained the seasonality of rain in in that region. There are long periods of of no rain. Now, this drought that they were experiencing would have been unprecedented. This is a long, long, long period of no rain. When when the brooks dry up, when springs aren't aren't flowing anymore, this is serious drought. But they would have experienced seasonal drought. And the way they explained this was that every year, at the same time of year, the, the god of the underworld would actually come and kill Baal and take him to the underworld. Well, if Baal's in the underworld, he can't make it rain. So they have seasonal drought. Well, then the, the rains come back because Baal's sister goes and rescues Baal and brings him back to life. So it rains again. It's really convenient, isn't it? But here we see, again, God provides rain. God deprives people of rain. God provides life. God deprives people of life. This isn't Baal. Baal doesn't work this way. He can't. He doesn't exist. So even at the end, the widow has to cry out in recognition of God. Surely your God, the God of Israel, lives. Surely he's, he lives. Baal doesn't. Baal can't do this stuff. So God is the ultimate provider. It's not Baal. It's not Ahab. It's not our president. It's not Trump, Hillary, Bernie. It, none of those people are our providers. But yet we look to them, don't we? And, and back here, they would have looked to Ahab as a provider. We need to look beyond. We need to look beyond just, just our, our physical needs and what, what our, our elected officials and, and what, what can be provided. We need to look here. We need to look at Christ at what he provided. We need to look at each other and see what we can provide. I love our men's group. I had, it just was awesome yesterday. And uh, it, it, was, it was amazing just being with the guys. We didn't solve anything. We didn't solve a darn thing, but we were there for each other, and that was neat. I loved researching and meditating on this narrative. I loved reading the material that Steve gave me to read. I loved the painting. Um, and while, while Kristen and I were on vacation a couple weeks ago, I, I, kind of, I was meditating on this at different moments. And we were in the desert in Arizona and southern Utah. It was beautiful, uh, but it was very dry, very arid area. And we went, through a, went for a raft trip on the Colorado River through the Glen Canyon. And that's one of the views. Ignore all that water in front. Believe me, it's very dry as testified to by the, all that sand up there. Anyway, it, just a very dry, arid area. 
And through the Glen Canyon, and you can't see this extremely well, but there's petroglyphs that are in the patina, is what it's called, on this rock. They just did the, the indigenous people cut these petroglyphs into the patina. And again, you can't see it there, but there's like, it looks like a sideways W is one of the petroglyphs. And it's thought that this sideways W represents the constellation Cassiopeia. Cassiopeia is a, is a uh, pol- Polaris, I think, a Polaris constellation, meaning it, it, it stays in the sky all year round. But when it looks like the sideways W, that kind of corresponds to spring. And spring is when this canyon, back before the, the, the Colorado River had all the dams, spring it would be when this canyon would flood. So the sideways W would tell the people who were residing in the canyon, when you see that sideways W up there in the sky, get out of the canyon because the floods are going to start coming. That I found extremely interesting in this context of provision and deprivation. Because we, we kind of have this, our, 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 our field of, of view, our, our frame of reference, if you will. And our frame of reference might be up on the hill that, that overlooks this, this canyon, or is, even is miles away from this canyon. And it might be dry, and it might be arid, and we might be in need of water. And we might pray and pray and pray for water. But the people down here in this canyon... If water comes to that hill, it can flood the canyon, and the people down here can lose their lives. So provision for one might mean deprivation for the other. And in this context, what I kept thinking about was, like the nation of of Israel, there were still righteous people in Israel. Elijah wasn't the only one. There were still, and and we'll, we'll read later in Kings, there were righteous people that were serving God. And they were suffering from the drought just as much as the wicked people were. Where was their provision? Why weren't they provided for? I don't know. Maybe this in some, some very minuscule metaphoric way can explain that, but, but I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe God knew really what they needed. Maybe they didn't need water. Maybe what they needed was guidance. Maybe they needed the word of God through Elijah. And they didn't really need water as much as they thought they did. Maybe our inequality is not an inequality. Maybe it is an equation. Maybe, in fact, God's provision is equal to deprivation sometimes. Maybe when we're in need and in want, maybe that's when we're being provided for the most. I don't know. I don't know. I like to think that might be true because it's somewhat comforting. Uh, In the context of sitting around with the guys yesterday, I want to think that's true because I think we were all feeling a little bit deprived in a way yesterday. Uh, I think we were all suffering. But at the same time, we were all there for each other. We were all providing for each other. So I think deprivation in the big picture equals provision because God has designed it this way. God has decided to use us 
to be there for each other and to provide for each other. And in doing so, to glorify him. So that's, that's where we'll end it. Let's, uh, let's pray. Lord God, you are, without a doubt, uh, an enigma. And we cannot grasp you. We, uh, we can't grasp your plans. We can't grasp uh, what you're doing. Uh, so often, it looks like you don't care. It feels like you don't care. It feels like we are deprived of everything, including you. And that's hard. It's hard for us, Lord. But you still show up in those times. And most often you show up in the form of other believers. And I thank you for that. I thank you for this church, for this body of believers that is able to provide for me and for each other in those times of deprivation, Lord. We can lean on each other. And therefore, Lord, we can know that your promises are true, that you will always provide for us. Even when it's not the way we want you to, we can be sure and we can rest in the fact that it's the way that we need you to. So, Lord, I just pray in Jesus' name that you will continue to provide for us and that you will continue to work in ways that are beyond us that we can't understand. And Lord, I pray that we will be strengthened by each other and by you and your spirit. Amen.